0: Turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Book of Jonah, chapter 1. And let's bow in prayer before we begin. Our Father, we come now to Your Word. We are hungry to hear from You through Your Word. We pray that that would be the case today. We ask that Your Spirit would be our teacher, that You would guide us and instruct us today. And may we draw out from this text all that You have for us to learn and to obey We pray, God, that You would use Your Word to soften our hearts and to encourage us, to equip us, and to edify us today, that as a result of having stood before You as Your people and as a result of having looked at Your Word, that we would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jonah chapter 1, we're going to begin reading at verse 4, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. One of the most stunning features in the book of Jonah, especially chapter 1, as you read through that, you have to be somewhat taken aback by the hardness of Jonah's heart. Don't you? The hardness of his heart. You look at Jonah, and you watch what he went through, and you watch how the Lord was orchestrating all of the events surrounding him and his disobedience. And as you get to the end of chapter one, you finish reading that and you just, at least I am somewhat stunned that a man of God, a prophet of God's heart could be so hard. And I start to ask myself, and maybe you've asked the question, is it possible for a child of God's heart to become that hard? Is it possible for somebody who is a believer, who is a follower of Christ, for their heart to become so hard that they would actually be willing to die instead of doing God's will? And sadly enough, I think, the answer to that question is yes. It is possible. That's why in the New Testament we are warned about guarding our heart and keeping our heart and watching over our heart. We are warned about obedience so that our hearts may not become hardened through disobedience and through unbelief. There are warnings in the New Testament, a lot of them in the book of Hebrews, which should sort of wake us up and alert us to the idea that we can become very hardened. Our conscience can be seared through disobedience and through unbelief. So how does somebody's heart become hard like Jonah's heart? I don't think that, I don't think that this happened all of a sudden for Jonah. That he woke up one day and his heart was like that. I don't think that he woke up the morning that the Lord told him to go to Nineveh, and his heart was already set in stone like it was, like we see it in chapter 1. There must have been, I I presume, because the text doesn't say this, but I presume, just knowing human nature, that there was probably a period of time before this where Jonah's heart began a long, sort of slow, downward progression that eventually resulted in a heart as hard as we see it in chapter 1. How does somebody's heart become so hard? Well, it can become hard through disobedience when you and I have an opportunity to obey or to disobey, even if it's a very small issue, when we disobey, it does something to our heart. It hardens it just slightly, almost probably imperceptibly. perceptibly, But it is hardened nonetheless. And when we obey truth and we respond to truth rightly, it softens our heart. When we disobey, it sears our conscience. And when we sin against our conscience, our conscience begins through small, very gradual steps, to become number and number and number so that we do not even begin to perceive the workings of the Spirit. So that things that once vexed our spirit and things that once disturbed us greatly no longer trouble us at all because our conscience becomes seared. So our hearts can become hard through disobedience. Our hearts can become hard when we hear the Word of God and we do not respond to it rightly. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, every time you hear the Word of God preached, or every time you read the Word of God, your heart is either hardened or softened. One of the two. But you never walk away the same. You either walk away from a sermon or from reading your Bible hardened or softened. And you know what determines whether you're hardened or softened by it? Your response to the reading or the hearing of the Word of God. When you respond rightly, your heart is softened and you are brought into deeper and more intimate fellowship with the Lord And when you disobey or when you walk away from it and you do not heed the words of Scripture or the voice of the Spirit of God in the pages of Scripture, then your heart is hardened. And it may be very slight. It may be very imperceptible. So is it possible for a Christian's heart to become hardened? It certainly is. It becomes hardened through disobedience. It becomes hardened by sinning against your conscience. It becomes hardened by ignoring and not heeding the words of Scripture, whether they're read or whether they are taught to us. It can become very hardened. Every evidence in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah indicates that Jonah's heart continued to be hard. Verses 3-6 to six, we saw that he made a conscious, deliberate, very well thought through decision to abandon his prophetic call, to walk away from his people, to leave his land, his country, his family and the majority of his possessions behind and to turn his back on everything that he had and that he was as a Jew and leave through Joppa to Tarshish on board this ship in order to not have to go to Nineveh to obey the Word of the Lord. That was a conscious, deliberate decision. Something that only a hard-hearted individual could do. Then once on board the ship, he was sound asleep, completely ob- oblivious, or at least uh, completely unconcerned about the danger that he faced and that everybody else faced. And when the captain woke him up and said, how do you sleep? How can you do this? Get up and call upon your God. Jonah didn't get up and call upon his God. He got up and he watched everything as it unfolded and the sailors were fearful. They threw the cargo overboard and Jonah watched all of this happen. He didn't come clean with whose responsibility it was. He waited and the sailors cast lots and Jonah could have come clean at the beginning and said, look, no need to cast lots, I'm your man. But he didn't do that. In fact, he waited until the lots were cast and it finally came down to him. Then when his hand was forced, then Jonah came clean. And what did he do when he finally came clean? Did Jonah say, look, let's turn the boat around. We'll head back to Joppa. I'll get off. I'll go to Nineveh and you will all be safe. No, Jonah said, look, we're all going to go down. And the only way that that can be prevented is if you throw me overboard, then the sea will become calm for you. Somebody came up to me last week and said, you, you answered last Sunday a question I've always had. And I said, what was the question? And she said, the question was, why didn't Jonah just jump overboard? And what's the answer to that question? The answer to that question is because Jonah did not want to go in the drink. He wanted to stay on board the ship, but he knew the only way that he was going to avoid uh, that the sailors were going to avoid death is if they pitched him overboard, like they did the rest of the cargo. He was hard-hearted, willing to take down a whole shipload full of sailors in his disobedience. That's how hard-hearted he was. So last week we looked and we saw how this storm is driving not only Jonah but also the sailors back to the Lord. In fact, it's not so much the effects of the storm on Jonah that is given to us in chapter 1. It's the effects of the storm on the sailors that's sort of the, the central idea or the central piece of chapter 1. We saw last week in verses 7, 8, and 9 the sailors' discovery that they cast lots in order to identify who the culprit was. Then we looked at their distress. They were exceedingly fearful when Jonah confessed to them who was responsible for the storm. And then they asked him, what are we going to do? What shall we do? What, what do we do with you in order that the sea may become calm for us? They, they're about to die. They know they're about to die. They want out. They want to know what do we have to do to appease your God in order to avoid disaster. Jonah says you have to pitch me overboard. So now this week we're looking at verses 14, uh, sorry, 13 through 16. And we're going to see in verses 13, 14 the dilemma of the sailors. And then in verse 15 and 16 the deliverance of the sailors. We've looked at their discovery and their distress. Today, verse 13 and 14, their dilemma. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let this, us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Now Jonah suggested, look, you're going to have to throw me overboard, and if you throw me overboard then the sea will become calm for you. In other words, I am the focus of all of God's wrath and His displeasure. And if you get me out of the ship, then the sea will become calm and it will no longer be aimed at you. But as long as I'm in your proximity, then you're going to be at the center of this storm as well. But the sailors, verse 13, it says, they were willing to do this. However, they rowed desperately to land. Now I'm going to ask myself, is that because the sailors did not believe Jonah? That sounds like a crazy thing to you, doesn't it? To have, if you were on board the ship and you said, whose responsibility is this? And the guy said, it's my responsibility. My God is mad at me because I've fled from him and I've disobeyed him. Well, what do we have to do? Well, you're going to have to throw me overboard. Put yourself in the sailor's position. At first blush, I wouldn't have believed Jonah. I would have said, there has to be some other way. You've probably got a lot of things right, but that can't be one of them. There's got to be some other option. Or maybe it is that they simply had more concern for Jonah than he had for them. That's possible too, right? That they knew they did not want to be guilty for throwing a man overboard, for killing a man, even if he is at the center of the storm, even if he is the cause of his God's displeasure. They don't want to kill him. There has to be some other option. And so they try and find another option. Well, we'll row toward land. And the Hebrew word there that's translated row, and it's translated row or road in all of the translations that are Probably here, as long as you have an NASB, a King James, New King James, or an NIV. It's translated as row or road in all of those translations. The word, the Hebrew word, according to Kyle and Dillich, Old Testament commentary and scholars, they said the Hebrew word actually means to try to break through, to push through something. To break through something. It's not necessary. It may be the case that the boat that Jonah was on had a whole deck of rowers, either slaves or hired hands, that rowed the boat with the big oars that stuck out the side of the boat. You've seen those in pictures and in movies. It may be possible that that's the type of ship that Jonah was on. Or maybe the idea is just simply that the sailors did everything that they could, either rowing or putting up the sails or steering the ship in order to head to land. But they were not able to do that. Why were they not able to do that? Because God purposed that they would be in the middle of the sea. God's purpose and God's plan by His sovereign hand and by His providence said, no, you're going to be right in the middle of the sea. Until I have you where I want you, and until I have Jonah where I want him, you're not going anywhere. So try as they might, row as hard as they might, with all of the all of the tools and the implements, all of the skills at their disposal, they tried to go for land because they wanted to avoid killing Jonah. They thought that throwing him overboard would mean certain death for Jonah. From their perspective, it was. They had no idea that a fish was being prepared. And they didn't want to be guilty of killing Jonah. But, they could not resist the plan and the purpose of God. So they rode, but they were not able to break through. The storm was becoming increasingly severe. Verse 5 says that these experienced sailors were fearful. Verse 11, I think it is, says that the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And here we see it again in verse 13. The sea was becoming even stormier against them. It was bad to begin with. Then it gets ratcheted up a notch. And then it gets ratcheted up another notch. And I think the idea is, if you could possibly imagine in your mind, a storm of a severity that is Utterly unbelievable. Unable for us to even fathom. Maybe even a miraculous thing that this ship was even holding together. An incredible storm. The tossing and the turning and the wet and the cold and the wind and the pitching. And being on board the deck of that ship as it, as it lurched to such a degree that you felt you were going to slide off into the water and then back just in time to feel like you're going to slide off the other side back into the water and nothing you can do. Wind and waves beating down on you. You've done everything. You feel your hand is forced. You've called out to your gods. You have thrown all the cargo overboard. You have found out who's responsible for it. You've done everything in your power to reach land. How long did this whole ordeal go on? That's what I wonder. It's it's so quick to read it, isn't it? We read the words. It takes about 15 or 20 seconds to get through the storm. But I wonder, how many hours did this happen? How many hours was this spread out over? A severe storm. But eventually, somebody had to suggest it. Eventually, somebody on board the ship had to say, Captain, it's him or it's us, but it's not going to be all of us. We've got to do something. After all, it was his suggestion. And you got to know that slowly all the eyes on board the ship would turn and look at Jonah. They, he had to know what was coming. They had to know this is our last option. If what he says is true, then we've got to throw him overboard. So, captain, you just say the word and he's out of here. And the captain obviously gave him the word. Or maybe there was a mutiny and the captain still didn't want to do it, but the sailors said, we're doing it anyway. Pitched him overboard into the sea. But, but they didn't do it gleefully. However they did it, they didn't do it gleefully. They didn't do it as a as a course of just sort of a knee-jerk reaction to this, this is something that was well thought through because they, they pray before they do it. Look at verse 14. Then they called on the Lord and said... Now, that's quite a radical change for pagan idol-worshiping heathen Gentiles, isn't it? Up to this point, they had been calling on their gods, all of their idols, all their deities, all the Phoenician gods. They have been calling on all of those gods. And now, these pagans are calling on the Lord. You know what's interesting to me? Nowhere in chapter 1 does Jonah pray. Do you notice that? Nowhere in chapter 1. He hasn't even been brought to a praying place yet. Jonah doesn't pray for safety. He doesn't pray for deliverance. They asked him to call upon his God, but there's no record that he did. He wouldn't have, I don't believe, and he didn't. His heart is still far from God. But pagan sailors, idolatrous sailors, these wicked, idol-worshiping Gentiles, they are now brought to a place where they are calling on Jonah's God. They're going over Jonah's head and they're calling out to Jonah's God. And look what they say, verse 14. We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. Now, did they regard Jonah as an innocent man? No, they didn't. That's not what they're suggesting. They're praying, Lord, do not put innocent blood on us. But it's not because... They believe Jonah to be innocent. He's already confessed. I'm the reason. He's already confessed that he was fleeing from his God. They already know this through the casting of lots. They've discerned this. They're able to narrow it down to Jonah. They don't believe him to be guiltless. So what does it mean when they say, don't put innocent blood on us? Here's what's going on. They are very reluctant. These men who know from creation and their conscience that killing another individual is wrong. They don't want to do that. And if this is an unjustified murder, if this turns out to be the wrong decision, they don't want to have the guilt for innocent blood imputed to their account. They don't want to be held guilty for doing what appears to be their only option, if indeed it is the wrong thing to do. They know Jonah's guilty. But if it turns out that this is the wrong thing to do, they do not want to stand before this God someday and give an account for throwing Jonah overboard. And so they are simply asking, Lord, don't impute innocent blood to us. We have no ability to discern if it's innocent or guilty, but we pray that in this situation you will not consider us guilty for doing what is our only option to do. And they felt their hand had been pushed to this option. Why? The end of verse 14. For thou, O Lord, have done what you have pleased. I love that confession. Thou, O Lord, have done what you have pleased. That which pleases you is that which you have done. And what did the Lord done? He had hurled a wind on the sea. He had caused a storm of such severity that it's difficult for us to even imagine it. He has identified through the casting of the lots that it is Jonah. He has put them in a position where this is, from their perspective, their only option. This is what they have to do. And what they're doing is they're saying, Lord, you're the one behind the storm. You're the one behind the lots. You're the maker of the sea, the ruler of the sea. And all that has happened to us here that has brought us to this point, you have brought us to this point. This has been your doing. What a confession that is. You could not get a clearer, more articulate confession of the sovereignty and the providence of God than that confession right now. There. You, O Lord, have done what you have pleased. This has pleased you, and so you have done it. And by the way, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, that's exactly what we mean. That confession right there. God does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever pleases Him. The wonderful thing about that is that God is most pleased to glorify Himself. So God does everything that He does for His ultimate glory. And that would be scary to us if we didn't at the same time understand that God's ultimate glory is accomplished when, he, when His creatures, His children, receive ultimate good. So the most glorious thing for God to do is to shower His creatures with their ultimate good, particularly His children, particularly those who are of the household of faith, the elect. So everything that comes into our lives, everything that happens to us, is for our good, and it most accomplishes God's glory. And God is most pleased to glorify Himself, so everything that He does, He does out of His own good pleasure. And it is His pleasure to bless us, ultimately for our good, that brings Him the most glory. Now this confession from the lips of... Pagans, no less. Amazing, isn't it? Quite a transformation going on. They're calling out to Jonah's God saying, be merciful to us. Give us deliverance from the storm. Give us deliverance from the danger that we are in. They cry out for deliverance. And it is actually, it is, it is deliverance that they actually get. Now look at verse 15 and 16. We're going to look at the sailors' deliverance. Verse 15, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. I'm going to confess to you something. If I were in Jonah's position right there and that happened to me, you know what would be most disappointing to me? The fact that I had paid the full fare and I did not get all that I had paid for. That would have disturbed me greatly. And as they picked me up, I would have been saying, excuse me, boys, but do you mind giving me a refund on my fare? I mean, I paid for Tarshish. You weren't able to get me to Tarshish. Maybe half you can at least compromise and give that swimming in the water realizing I paid the full fare and I didn't get to where I wanted to go. Now I say that because I'm cheap. It's part of one of my spiritual gifts. One of my many spiritual gifts. Cheapness is what ranks among the top of them. Now Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great expositor from earlier this last century, he made a great observation about that. He said, when you disobey the Lord, you always end up paying the fare and you never reach your destination. And when you obey the Lord, He pays the fare and you always get to your destination. It's a great observation. And it's true. When you disobey, do you ever cost God anything? Nothing. You don't cost Him anything. You don't rob Him of any glory. You don't thwart His purpose. The nations might rage. He's still going to accomplish His will. You don't cost God anything. You only cost yourself. And most often, it's very severely. And you never get to where you're going because sin always promises you something at the end and it never pays off. Never. You never get what sin tempts you into or lures you for. You never get what sin promises. It's like a mirage in the desert. You think you're getting an oasis until you finally get to your destination and you realize, I've been robbed. This whole thing has been an illusion. That's exactly what sin does. So Jonah had paid the whole fare and he never got to where he was going. Had he obeyed God, he would have found, as, as Barnhouse observed, that God was willing to pay the fare and he always would reach his destination. And we're always blessed in the end. When we obey God and we reach our destination. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the storm, and the sea, listen, immediately stopped raging. It's a sudden thing. Imagine going from pitching back and forth on board that ship, the wind, the rain, the cold, the driving rain and cold, and the storm and the waves and everything that felt like it was just going to rip that ship apart at any moment. And the minute Jonah hits the water, the sea stops its raging. And it all goes still. And it all goes quiet. And I picture the sun coming out and the clouds parting and the sea becoming immediately still. Now this is something for those sailors that they had never seen any of their idols ever do. As often as they had cried out to their gods and their idols, they had never seen a demonstration of power like this. They had never seen a demonstration of anything miraculous or providential like this. When Jonah hits the water, the sea stops its raging. And they are delivered from the storm and from the danger just as they prayed that God would deliver them from the storm and from the danger. But it wasn't just deliverance from a storm that they got. Look at verse 16. They get another deliverance as well. Verse 16 says, The men feared the Lord greatly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That is to say they got saved. They got saved. I believe that all these sailors on board this ship that are spoken of here in this passage, they got delivered that day not just from the storm but also from their sin. Every word in verse 16 is a word used to speak of a genuine repentant, penitent conversion of a, of a heathen heart. Notice that it says that they feared the Lord. Now, verse 5 says they feared the storm. They were exceedingly afraid of the storm. Later on in verse 10, I think it is, 11, they says that they were extremely frightened when they heard that Jonah was running from his God. And they heard that confession. And now here at the end of the chapter, their fear has moved from the storm to God. But in a context like this, the Hebrew word for fear doesn't mean a terror like they had of the storm. It's a different type of fear. In context where it's used of worship or or things associated with worship, like we find the word sacrifice and vow, it has the idea of a reverential fear. This is not a terror in the sense of get away from me. I want nothing to do with you. I want to get away as far as I can. That's an unholy fear. The type of fear being spoken of here now is a holy fear. They feared the Lord. Now, not their idols. Look at twice in the verse. The Lord's name is given. It's not their idols that they're fearing. And they haven't merely added Jehovah to a pantheon of other gods. They haven't put Him up on a shelf with all their other idols. They have moved from fearing their idols to fearing the one true God. Because they've seen something that they have never seen before. And they've heard Jonah's confession and now they have a reverential, holy fear of God. If you've been saved, you have probably experienced this at some point around the time of your your salvation or sometime in your life where you have moved from having no fear of God to having a healthy fear of God. Have you had that? I remember at my salvation when I got saved, and I'm not suggesting this is a pattern for everybody, and if you didn't have this happen, you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. But at the time of my salvation, I remember before I got saved having no fear of God. I remember saying to myself, when I would read a passage of Scripture in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, I'd read the passage and i say, I could have written that better. Why take three chapters to describe the creation of the world? Why not just say God did it? I had no reverence of the Bible whatsoever. I could take mockery or blasphemy upon my lips without any fear whatsoever. But once I got saved, I feared the Lord. And I began to have a holy reverence for His Word and a holy reverence for His work and a holy reverence for Him that I never had before. That's the type of fear that's being described. Not just a terror, but an awe-filled worship. Why? Because they have just seen a demonstration of the power of this God that has filled their hearts with awe and with wonder, like they've never seen before. So they begin to fear the Lord. And it also says that they offered sacrifices. What type of sacrifices? It doesn't say that. It might have been blood sacrifices. It could have been an animal that they hadn't thrown overboard. Maybe the captain had a parrot that they offered. I don't know what it was. It could have been some animal on board the ship. It may be that by sacrifices what is meant is that they just offered to the Lord something valuable that was still on board the ship that they hadn't thrown overboard yet but they offer a sacrifice to the lord and then not only that but they make vows to the lord what type of vows these vows were probably probably promises of worship promises of homage promises of obedience maybe it is that they vowed to return to jerusalem to go to the temple and to find out more about this hebrew god Maybe it is that they vowed that from now on they would never turn back to their idols, never worship their idols again, never sacrifice to their idols, but that He would be their one true God. This was now the God of every sailor on board the ship. And that's the way they were going to have it. And they they made vows to the Lord. They made sacrifices to the Lord. There's a worship service going on on board the ship. Under the beautiful clear sky, no winds, no rain, no waves. And the sea has stopped its raging. And so what do they do? They begin to worship. The fact that they offered sacrifices and vows to the Lord after their deliverance, I think, is a good indication that they were converted. You've all heard of foxhole, um, as we say, foxhole baptisms. That's not right. Foxhole conversions. Foxhole conversions. Men and women are willing to to sacrifice and vow almost anything to God when they're under duress. But the sailors didn't do that. All the while with their, this storm going on, they don't plead with Jehovah. They don't bargain with Him. Lord, if You will deliver me from this, then I'll give You this. If You do this for me, then I'll serve You for the rest of my days. They don't do any of that in the midst of the storm. What do they do in the midst of the storm? They cry out for mercy. Have mercy on us. Don't let us perish on account of this man. Deliver us from the storm and deliver us from our guilt. And they throw him overboard and the, sun, the sea stops its raging. And they having experienced deliverance, then they begin to worship. That is the order of genuine conversion. We do not offer sacrifices, and we do not make vows, and we do not do things in order to be delivered. But having been delivered from our sin, having been saved, having been delivered from divine wrath, that is the appropriate thing to do. You offer sacrifices, and you make vows, and you say, Thou, O God, are my God, You are my King, You are my Lord. From this day forward, I will obey You. Give me strength to do just that. That's evidence of genuine conversion. Now, what could lead to such conversion? I want you to think for a second, just imagine in your mind, all of the theological training that these boys on board the ship have had in the last several hours. Right? They've come to understand that their idols are nothing. They're just the work of men's hands. They're wood, they're stone, they're precious metals. That's all they are. They're just the fabrications of men's minds and imaginations. They're powerless to deliver from either guilt or from danger. They did not create the oceans or their idols would be able to control the oceans. But they've come to understand that the Hebrew God is the God of the creation. He is the maker of the sea and the dry land. He is the one who rules in heaven. He is sovereign over all. They've already confessed it. You have done as you have pleased. You are sovereign and you rule. Through your providence, through your power, He is the Almighty God. Beyond that, they have also come to understand that this God, that they will someday have to deal with Him because they have asked for deliverance from innocent blood. They knew that if they killed an innocent man, that they would be considered guilty before this God. And they've come to understand that their guilt would make them accountable on Judgment Day. And they also come to understand that this God delivers the praying and penitent sinner when He is called out to with earnestness for deliverance. That is quite a theological conversion, is it not? They have come to understand, basically, in these last several hours on board this ship, everything that they need to understand who God is, what He has done, what He can do, what He will do, and they have been converted, and they have turned their backs on all of their idols and turned to the God of Israel. I want you to notice just a couple of things about this whole passage, just generally speaking. First of all, I want you to notice how devout those sailors were through all of chapter 1. They're pictured, the sailors, ironically enough, these these pagan, heathen, Gentile, idol-worshiping, idolatrous sailors, As foul-mouthed as you can imagine a sailor being, if there's any sailors here, I apologize if this offends you. As foul-mouthed and as pagan and as heathen as you can imagine these sailors being, they are portrayed all the way through chapter 1 as being very devout men, living up to the light they had received. In verse 5, they begin calling out to their gods. They knew from creation that a god existed. They knew from creation that there was a deity, that there was some higher power, some God who was behind all of this. And they are worshipping earnest everything that they know. They've, they're living up to the light that they had received. Now listen, they're still damned. They're still unsaved. They're not delivered yet. They needed to be saved. But they're living up to whatever light they had received. Ironically, Jonah is not. How much light did Jonah have? He had the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets, he had the historical books, he had the temple, they had the sacrifices, they had the tradition, they had all the oracles of God, they had everything, he was a prophet of God, he knew Jehovah. And who is living up to the light? These pagan sailors. They're very devout men. And then when they come to understand who the true God is, they immediately live up to that light. And they confess him as the true God and offer sacrifices and worship to that true God. Their conduct toward what they have been shown and revealed is what we would expect from Jonah. And Jonah's conduct toward the light that he has been given is what we would expect from pagan sailors on board a ship. A very devout men. Second, I want you to notice that even though Jonah disobeyed and even though Jonah rebelled, that God still brought something tremendously good out of this. Now, Jonah is on board the ship. Why? Because he does not want to be the vehicle through which God will bring grace to pagan idol worshipers. He does not want to be responsible for seeing anybody around him that might be a pagan in Nineveh saved. No idol-worshipping Gentile saved on my watch. Not on my watch. And he's devout in that. He is determined in that. So he gets on board the ship, and what happens? Did Jonah's rebellion against the Lord result in fewer or more conversions? More! Man! You just can't win when you run against the Lord, can you? And that's exactly the point in Jonah chapter 1. One of these days, and it's going to be sometime in the book of Jonah, before we get to the end, or maybe at the end of the book of Jonah, I'm going to take a whole Sunday and we're going to look at this theological issue of how does God take the rebellion and the wickedness and the disobedience of His people and of all people and work it out to His ultimate good? Because God purposed... To bring these sailors to faith and obedience and conversion. That was part of the purpose of God. That wasn't an afterthought. It's not as if the Lord had Jonah out on the sea. And then He said, you know what? While you're here, I guess I could do something. I could get these guys saved. That wasn't it at all. God purposed to save these men. How would He do that? Here's how He did it. He allowed a rebellious prophet to go just far enough to bring salvation to those men. And no further. That's why they couldn't get to land. That's why they couldn't row against the waves. He allowed a rebellious prophet to go this far, just as far as his purpose would accomplish something grand and glorious for himself, and no further, and then he stopped it. Right there. How is it that God orchestrates all things for our good and for His glory? And how is it that a sovereign God is somehow able to accomplish His ultimate glory through rebellious and wicked people. How is it that God can still be glorified when the President and our representatives and the, all of the kings of the earth and all of the nations rage against it? How does He do that? Well, we'll answer it. There's, there's more evidence of this in the book of Jonah, more irony like this. So we'll wait till we get to the end of that and then we'll deal with it because that's a major theological gem in the book of Jonah. Here the Lord purpose to do something, and Jonah said, no, I won't do it. And God said, no, you don't understand. You're gonna do it anyway. You're just gonna not enjoy it when it gets done. And I will make you hurt. And you'll miss all the blessing for not doing it, but I'm gonna accomplish my will anyway. And if you wanna make it miserable on yourself, then kick against the goads and make it miserable on myself, but I'm gonna accomplish my will. Like Saul of Tarsus. Just like Saul of Tarsus. Who said, I'll destroy the church. And so he set out to do that. And what happened? The church flourished. It grew. Because you cannot thwart the will and the purpose and the plan of God. Just how far does God allow disobedience and rebellion to go? Just far enough to accomplish His will. And no further. We'll look at that later on in the book of Jonah. Third thing I want you to notice is how blessing came out of calamity for these sailors. You notice that? I I thought this was... I thought this was very interesting. From the sailor's perspective, it's disaster. It's calamity. Nothing good could be happening. They're on the verge. They've lost everything. They're on the verge of losing their lives. They think that this is total destruction that they're facing because of this man. But what has ended up happening? God has brought a blessing to these pagan sailors that they could have never foreseen. He has brought a blessing to them that they could have never anticipated. And how did it come? Through a calamity. Friends, do you understand that some of God's richest blessings come to us disguised as calamity? Do you get that? Some of God's richest blessings come to us disguised as disaster. Disguised as something horrible. These sailors thought this was all disaster and calamity, but what is the result of it? They came to know the one true God. And God brought them something through this calamity that they could have never foreseen coming. And that was a huge blessing. Now what happens to Jonah? What becomes of Jonah in the midst of all this? That's not a very big cliffhanger, is it? Because all of you know the end of the story. So I can't honestly give you anything to anticipate next week. But we will look at what happened to Jonah. Was he really swallowed by a fish? Or is that just an allegory? You know the answer to that, right? There is no such thing as allegory in your Bible. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank You for the lessons that we learned from this prophet. We thank You, God, that You do indeed bring blessing to us out of calamity. You do bring disaster disaster into our lives and calamitous things into our lives simply to show us more of who You are and to draw us closer to You. We thank You for Your sovereign and good hand which purposes all things, which directs all things, and which uses all things for our good and for Your glory. And give us now, God, grace to submit to that gracious hand to submit to Your sovereign will, to love You through it and to see You honored and glorified in our lives. We live for Your glory. We are created for Your glory and You've redeemed us for Your glory. We pray, God, that we would not stand in any way in way of You ultimately glorifying Yourself. Use us, O God, even our failings and our inadequacies to accomplish that end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.